Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades podcast, episode 252. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. It is week whatever of quarantine. How you doing? How you holding up? Staying sane? Staying safe? Staying healthy? I hope you're good. We're doing well around here. And one of the reasons we're doing well around here is the weather has finally started to get nice. It feels like summer is coming. And summer is by far and away my favorite season. I'm optimistic about what? I'm not entirely sure, but that's a better place to be. But one of the things that's really keeping me going is this show. And on episode 252 here, I've got Sam Talent. Sam Talent is an amazingly funny comic. And it's funny on this episode because he apologizes to me for not being funnier, for being a little bit more sincere, a little bit more earnest. And I go, you don't ever need to apologize for that. Because one thing I've learned about myself, and I learned this when I was talking to John Wenzel, who writes for the Denver Post. I said, you know, I'm not as funny as I think I am. And I think everyone fancies themselves funny. And it's kind of like that old Dave Barry bit. No matter who we are, we all believe we're above average drivers. I think everyone thinks that they're funny. Now, it's one thing to be funny with your friends and your family and stuff. Like, I cut up my friends. We all cut up each other, right? But that's the nature of friendship. That's If you're not doing that, what kind of weirdo friendship do you have? But being funny professionally is something entirely different. And you think about the tryhards out there. And I've written about this on the Deaf blog before. But my least favorite personality type in any job is the staff meeting cut up. You know, that hacky dickhead who just uses every opportunity to snipe in and hurl some unfunny claptrap at everyone, and sit back with this self-satisfied little grin, being like, yep, I went there, because I'm funny. I'm edgy. Oh, God, shut up. Just shut up so we can all get out of this staff meeting a little bit faster. You make me want to swallow an ice pick with this, okay? You're just making this longer with the unfunny shit. And so when I realized I am not as funny as I thought, that was kind of freeing. And it allowed me to have different types of conversations. How many comedy podcasts are out there? There's like a billion of them, right? How many of them are actually funny? But I'm not aiming to be funny here. I want to have a real conversation. I want to have real connection. And I hit it off with Sam. And Sam, even though he says, sorry, I wasn't funnier. Dude, I laughed so hard during this episode because he's just a naturally funny dude. His description of the type of comedy you have to do when you live in Las Vegas is spot on and hilarious. Put me on my ass. And so in this week's show... We talk about some of my favorite things. Lucha Libre and Laughs. Fantastic local comedy and wrestling show here in Denver. I cannot wait till we're all having events again because that's like the first thing I want to go to. Comedy and pro wrestling. Sam's one of the commentators. He and Nathan Lund absolutely bust a gut hilarious, especially if you're a wrestling fan like me. They actually enhance the product. They don't put themselves above it. They don't have any ironic distance. They're both wrestling fans. They both respect what's going on in the ring. And still, somehow, are goddamn hilarious doing it. We talk about music. He's the drummer for this band, Big City Drugs, which doesn't play that much anymore because everyone lives in different cities. We talk about life on the road. And we talk about his new book, of which I realized he didn't even tell me the title. But it is available. You can find a link to where you can get it. And I still don't know because it just goes to an email address. But you can find it in the show notes and on the companion blog piece. If you're listening on iTunes, Stitcher, or any podcatcher, you can find it there. 
or at johnofalltrades.us. J-O-N of alltrades.us. And what can I say, man? This is a great show, and I'm proud of the work I do. Sam tells me, very candidly, that's one thing he's got going for him in spades, is this was way better than I expected it to be. Thank you? Thank you. Yes. You know what? I will take it as a compliment because I work really hard on this show and I try to make it good. Whether I've succeeded, that's up to you. But if you like it, hit up iTunes, hit up Stitcher, leave me a rating, leave me a review, hit that subscribe button, get brand new episodes to you. All those things really help John of All Trades. And I'll give you a big sloppy kiss next time we're all not in quarantine. So that won't be for a while. So make sure you write an IOU for it. Now then, let's get to episode 252 of the John of All Trades podcast. It's Sam Talent. He's a phenomenal stand-up comic. He's got a new novel coming out, and he's got great stories to tell. So, episode 252, Sam Talent, starts right now. I tripped a bunch of mushrooms the other day, like three days ago, and I like called my wife, and I was like, we're going to, let's do it. Like, Let's have a baby now. I'm like ready to do it. <laughs> and she was like, all right, call me back in the morning if you're serious, and I was, man. So I think we're going to have a baby, like, pretty soon. Wow. All right. Well, breaking news here. <laughs> oh, yeah. Are we, are we on? Are we filming? Uh, so this will just be audio, but... Yeah. Cool. Yeah, man. Yeah. Okay. I'll be funnier then if we're recording. <laughs> uh, yeah. Sure. So we're going to have a baby. So that's... Uh, I don't know. I've just been such a fucking selfish pig my entire adult life being a stand-up and just, like, doing whatever I want all the time. And I, my mushroom epiphany was, like, I need to be responsible to something bigger than myself, so well, I think I want to have a baby. Wow. Like, I mean, that's a big moment, and it's a good one. Like, I mean, you can ask Adam about it, and, uh, you know, Ben's got kids, Andrew's got kids. You know, so this is Sam Talent, comic, all-around kind of guy, and author with a book coming out soon. When's that book coming out? Uh, so I'm selling pre-order copies right now. The book will probably ship end of May. I'm just waiting for my, all the copies I ordered to get here. So hopefully end of May it'll be shipped. Wow. Well, I've seen you a number of times, uh, in person and, uh, always, always love your act. Always think it's great. So I was excited to get to do this because I figure while in quarantine, like, let's talk about stuff that bring us, bring us joy. And yeah, for sure. I mean, like what else is there? Right. I mean, and especially now, like, I, I know tonight, as we're recording this, like, this will have happened in the past by the time this gets released, but you're doing, like, a stand-up show tonight via Zoom, right? Yeah, which sucks. Those are all fucking stupid. <laughs> These stand-up shows on Zoom are the worst, and they're not stand-up, and it's like, no one's out there, like, begging for stand-up. No one's in quarantine, like, God, you know what I miss? Stand-up comedy. People, like, they're hungry. They want to, like, eat food and, like, see their families. Stand up is such a narcissistic pursuit right now. I'm I don't know. I don't know if I agree with you on that though. Well, I mean, I mean, maybe I'm wrong because I am a stand up, but like, I don't think anyone's clamoring for stand up. And also, the version of stand up that happens on Zoom is not stand up. I'm, I'm a crowd work guy. I talk to people. Yeah. I like to interact with the room. And you can't do that when you're alone, laying in your bed. Well, no. So, I mean, I haven't watched one of these Zoom stand up comedy things. And Good. I, Be with your daughters. <laughs> Stay away from them. Okay. Uh, what is it like? I mean, uh, like, is there a crowd? Uh, like, are there any reactions? That seems like it wouldn't work given the technology. Some of the better ones, like, have, like, certified laughers, like, in the Zoom call. They'll be like, all your comics are in, like, a digital green room where you're on the same Zoom call. And then they'll bring in, like, five people who aren't, they're not, like, paid to laugh, but, like, they're people who want to be in the show. So you can hear them laugh. <laughs> Okay. On some of them, and then some of them you can't hear anything, and you're just howling into the void. 
and people are like, you know, hitting like the laughter emoji or whatever on Twitch. But oh Jesus, it's garbage, dude! I hate it. <clears> That's not what. I, it's not why I became a stand-up. Was to be in my room doing bits. Uh, no, I mean, what kind of bits are you doing anyway? Like, I, I, and how much COVID material is there? I mean, I don't know. All the New York comics and LA comics, of course, are doing COVID because they're bad. But the, uh, <laughs> the better comics are just like, I don't know. The only way I've found to do it is to do like a tour of my house. Like uh, okay. one time I did one. I did like the first one they did that I knew of. And like my mom was there and she was asleep on the couch. So I kept like talking shit to her and like <laughs> offering to sell pictures of her feet. And then I had my dad do that thing. Where he like, you know, when you kneel on your shoes and it looks like you're a little person. Yeah, I had my dad do that and I cut to him, and that was a big laugh. But like, people who are trying to do their jokes, it's a complete waste of time. It's totally stupid. Well, yeah, like don't don't do your act. Like you know, like Jerry Seinfeld talking about airline peanuts. Like no one's flying, right? No. So, yeah, everyone's afraid. <laughs> this isn't the time for laughter. Well, no, there's plenty of time for laughter, but I, I don't think the traditional form of stand up is exactly the way to do it. To your point. No, definitely. Yeah, do like a live podcast or something. Do something where people are talking, but to hear people do their act, it sucks. <laughs> yeah, that sounds brutal. Although I would I would have enjoyed seeing your dad do the Dorf on Golf routine. Oh, dude, he killed. <laughs> I had people like direct messaging me being like, man, your dad doing the little guy bit was hilarious. And I'm like, well, good. I'm glad me doing an old standby was the funniest thing that happened in my 10-minute set. Very good. So the other night, I was hanging out in my kitchen, and... I was like just reheating some party pizza or something like really banal like that. But I flipped, I flipped open Facebook and Kevin O'Brien was doing his little like DJ quarantine party from his apartment. That a sad display. <laughs> I, I kicked him some money. Good. But, uh, you know, like it made me happy because he's just in there like totally guileless, just living it up. And I go, you know what? That's like a pure expression of joy. And I'm kind of enjoying that. Like I appreciate that on a real visceral level. Because that's kind of what we need right now. Um, but I was thinking, it reminded me when I was talking to him, and I think he said this about you, that when he initially met you, he didn't like you because you come from improv, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you have an improv background. And so you mentioned to me that you like doing a lot of crowd work. Was that as a result of sort of like doing an improv background? And do you think that contributed to your overall style of comedy? Oh, I mean, it for sure contributed to my style of comedy. It was like learning improv and you know trying to make the crowd my scene partner but i think what it really boils down to and i'm not trying to be like glib or whatever but i really don't like my act like i think a lot of comics hate their jokes after a while just repeating your jokes over and over and over again like really sucks any kind of magic out of them mm. so i've found that crowds a like it a lot more when you give them a show that's never happened before and it's a lot more exciting and there's a lot more of like uh, a palpable electricity in the room and they can tell you're trying to fly by the seat of your pants and also i'm just like better at it like i'm not the best joke writer i have to like use a lot of charm and like silliness and uh, i gotta use every part of the buffalo you know because i can't like sit down and like write a joke like adam Peyton holland can okay so it's like okay uh it's funny you say that because i mentioned this on the ben roy show that i just did but um, I just read Dimitri Martin's book. And when I say read, I use that in the loosest term possible because it's entirely a picture book. Yeah. And, like, there's so many different kinds of jokes in there. And so you mentioned – I think I even used the term use every part of the buffalo. That strikes me, though, like, if you're out in front of crowds, like, are they ever just giving you nothing? And, like, how do you recover from that? Like, do you have things that you kind of lean on that you're able to? 
like because crowds are unpredictable that way and it's kind of a high wire act yeah they are but like uh i'm kind of lucky in the uh, two things i'm lucky now that when i when i have toured so hard for so long that now i can draw 50 to 100 people who like finally want to see me oh nice you know what i mean so like performing in front of people who want to see you is so much better because they like what i do but then like also when the crowd isn't giving it to you I go complete madman and start berating them, and not like in a not like an angry stepdad kind of way, but like uh, <laughs> I don't know. We've been editing my comedy special every day for two hours on Skype, like me and the editor and the director and the cameraman. Yeah. So I didn't realize how much I would riff at someone, and then when they laugh, tell them to shut up. That's been <laughs> a big thing. I've been growling a lot on stage too. I've been going like, Ugh, so I I'm a, I'm a very competitive person, so I want to kill. Yeah. Like, I don't really have any time on stage to like set something up to get like a three minute setup for like a one quick payoff thing. So I'm definitely not going to settle. Like I'll go down swinging. I will definitely <laughs> ground and pound them. I'll take them to the ground. I'll get the submission if I have to. Yeah. But uh, like and, and when I go down swinging, it's a fabulous crash too. Like that is fun. When I bomb, I bomb harder than anyone because I don't give up. <laughs> Well, it, it reminds me, and I don't know, I don't think I would classify this as bombing, but I was at, when was that? I can't even remember what year it was, but it was called like Offensively Delicious. It was at the Oriental. It was during Green American Beer Fest. You were there with like yeah. Kyle Kinane, um, who I think was headlining. Do you remember this show? And I know I'm like asking you what you had for breakfast in like 2013, but like no, do you... I do. I remember that show because I was auditioning for Dinosaur Jr.'s management at that show. What? Yeah, like Dinosaur Jr., like that Jay Mascius guy like called me and was like, hey, uh, is this Sam Talent? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, this is Jay from Dinosaur Jr. And I was like, yeah, right. Who is this? And like hung up the phone, you know? Yeah. And he called me back and he was like, hey, man, like I've seen a couple of your videos and I think you're funny. My manager's in town in Denver. Can I send him to see your show? And I was like, oh, okay. So, yeah, that guy came and watched, and I, I ended up working with him for, like, a year, but he ended up being a shit comedy agent. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I remember the show. Okay. That was a tough crowd because you had a crowd that was, I think, even more liquored up than normal and, w- like, was very shouty and very interrupty. Oh, yeah. And, like, I wanted to, like, I was there to, to hear comedy, not to hear the fucking crowd like, just just be shitty to the comics. And I remember, like, Kanane even was getting it from both ends on that one how do you like wrangle sort of i don't know if you'd call it a hostile crowd but a challenging crowd like that oh i don't know man i mean every crowd's unique that's like a tough question to answer i guess i mean those people were so up their own ass because they're all fucking glorified homebrewers right they're all jerking each other off like oh wow i love your malty notes and your fucking you know peanut butter wheat so they didn't give a shit they were drinking all day and they wanted to just like you know start doing blow i'm sure so in that situation you just kind of like do your time and put your head down and you can lay into them like if they're being shitty to you you can go after them you know yeah oh yeah i think you have to out i think you have to alpha them and like (laughs) prove that you're not afraid and that you're you know you're gonna try and break them like a wild horse (laughs) and if you like show if you flinch or show fear or whatever dude you've lost like they can tell when you're scared yeah crowds are really smart there's so much, like, human shit going on when you're on stage. Like, so much unsaid, like, you know, subtextual, like, body language stuff that they know. Like, you can't fake it. If you're spooked, you can't fake it. You just have to be brave and try and own it. 
I I remember so yeah I, your your notes about craft beer people I think are well taken because my wife and I love going to breweries and trying new beers and stuff but we try not to like sniff our own farts about it yeah you know, like there's there's so much just like hoity-toity pretentiousness that is so misplaced to me that for it's, sure it's also like I love beer if you want to drink beer and like make beer cool have a hobby but if you're like a 35 year old guy and your whole personality is you like IPAs, right. you should be locked in a cage. Like right. you suck. You know what I mean? Right. You, you are the kissing cousin to the guy who talks about nothing but fucking CrossFit. For sure. And it's like, Hey, Miller lights the best beer. Shut up. Admit it. I want to drink Miller light all day. Like I'll have, I'll have some good beers. I'm also like, I'm a complete hypocrite in everything I say. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I dude, do love Miller Lite, though. Well, dude, my thing is, so I grew up in Golden, so like I'm a Coors guy. You will, yeah. you will always find Coors Banquet and Coors Light in my fridge, and I will never. Coors Banquet is great. Coors Banquet is the fucking tits, dude. Yeah, dude. yeah, but like I, you know, I will, I will love every note of this crazy, you know, passion papaya fucking goza, and be like, oh, that's a little bit saltier than I was expecting, and whatever. But like, I'm not trying to prove anything. I just like it. You know, like, so I'm not like this dipshit connoisseur. I'm more of an enthusiast. Like, I will shotgun key light with you behind the Oriental if you want. <laughs> yeah. Also, Oriental is the name of a theater in Denver, if you're not sure. <laughs> right? uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. If uh, Yes. I'm not being uh, like an old person racist when I say that. Yeah. You're not trying. Yeah. Anyway, I'm with you on that, dude. Uh, also, though, like, if I'm going to have beers, like, I'm rarely having one beer. Oh, I'm sure. I'm planning on having, like, eight to 12. Like, I'm not, like, uh, I, you know, I'll have, I'll have a nice beer with dinner, maybe, but if it's, like, time to drink beer, it's time to drink, like, a bunch of beers, so I can't drink a bunch of, like, you know, evil bastard ales or whatever. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, that uh, that can be a little rough. How long have you been a uh, pro wrestling fan? But you know what, man? That's, like, a weird one, because, like, I grew up, you know, like, when I was a kid, I think every red-blooded American male enjoys wrestling until they touch their first boob. And then it's like a totally shameful thing that you might still do with your friends. I liked wrestling up until I was like probably 13 or 14 and then quit liking wrestling. And then when Gossard started up the Lucha Libre show, me and Lund were best friends. Lund fucking loves wrestling. He like oh, lives and breathes wrestling. No, that's like, so um, Lund was on my show like four years ago at this point. And we yeah. like all we did was talk about WrestleMania that was coming up, and so like Drew McGarry said, everyone has that one friend who's like way in, way too into wrestling. Oh yeah, Lund is yours. I'm everyone else's. So like we hit it off like that. So no, that's for sure. That's my thing too. And like I don't really watch wrestling, honestly. You know what I love though is uh, I do consume a lot of the behind-the-scenes, like, shoot content. Oh, sure. Like, I love listening to uh, that Conrad guy who does that podcast out of Alabama. Oh, Conrad uh, Thompson? Yeah, Conrad Thompson, who I, he came to one of my shows in Bama and was, like, really cool and, like, bought the bar around the drinks. He's, like, rich as hell. I like listening to him talk to uh, Bruce Pritchard yeah. and Jim Cornette. I like listening to Stone Cold. I love the Dark Side of the Ring shit. Like, I love I love listening to road stories. I do and too. wrestlers are just like comics, where they're on the road like all the time. They're drug dependent. They're boozers. They're bad at being in relationships. And I just I love all of the behind. Like, I can listen to that Conrad guy's podcast. I can listen to like you know Eric Bischoff and Stone Cold talk about like Starcade. 
99, right. even though I never watched Arcade 99. Yeah, I just, I like all the minutia of wrestling. I mean, it's fun to watch wrestling, but I'm not the biggest mark when yeah. it comes to the actual product. Um, I, I think that's probably a good place to be. Uh, certainly better than having to consume all this fucking content every single week because there's so much goddamn content to just keep up with. And I'm actually friends with the guy who used to produce Stone Cold's podcast. Oh, nice. Yeah, he, li- podcast rules. Yeah, he lives in Denver, and he actually works for WWE now, producing podcasts for them. It's awesome. Good for him. I don't know. Like, I, I do – my because I have so many friends who are, like, huge wrestling fans because I'm a comedian, you know? Sure. And, like, that is the personality trait of most comics. It's, like, that or they just got sober. That's, like, the two kind of comedians in the world. <laughs> um, so – I don't know. Like, I like I like the like the the new Japan shit I've seen is pretty sick. Yeah, like I've seen a couple of those, and then uh, that AEW shit is live, man. They're really cool. Oh, it's lit. It's cool. Yeah, I because I don't like storylines. I don't give a shit about building for you know. I'm not trying to put butts in seats. Yeah, I just want to see the action and the shit that AEW is doing is like right up my alley because I don't know any of their names or anything. I just like to see them be wild. Yeah. It's funny, dude, because like I, I get tired of well, basically neck beards and anything, which is you know wrestling, craft beer. I got it in spades in terms of like neck beard fandom that's out there. Comedy, that's another one. Like I, for sure. But I was watching, and so this is gonna make me seem like I'm just up my own ass with this. But growing up, I watched like Burns and Allen with my dad. So like old, their old TV show, George Burns, Gracie Allen. Yeah, And George Burns is doing one of his monologues. He's like, I work all the time. I need to work. And part of what I have to do is see what other comics are doing. And he's doing this all scripted, right? It's all in character. He goes, I need to see what the other comics are up to. That's why I tell Gracie, I have to watch wrestling. And I thought to myself, <laughs> what a great joke. And like, what a great response to anyone who's like, man, I miss it when it was real or people thought it was real. Dude, he was recording that show in the 1950s, and even he knew yeah. it was a joke. Like, come on. Like, let's not take this shit so seriously. Yeah. No, I totally agree. It's weird. that I mean, wrestling such... It's like one of the few American art forms, you know? Right. Totally. It's like jazz. It's like stand-up comedy. Like, we, we made it. It came from carnies. Like, I love the history of wrestling, man. Yeah. I just love anything. I love carny shit. I love old showbiz. So Totally. And wrestling is so gross, and they've always been freaks and outcasts. Yeah. And I love that. Those you know, are my I peeps, love dude. Brody. I love Stan the Man Hansen. I love all those dudes. Oh, Stan Hansen, dude. Wow. What a what a name. And like what a character too. Just big as a brick shit house and just mean. So He lives in Grand Junction. Get the fuck out, really? Yeah, so there's a comic named Alex Creasy in town who grew up next door to him and was like <laughs> always over at Stan the Man's house. Wow. That is unspeakably cool what i was gonna say was so like you guys do lucha libre and laughs and like they're they were supposed to have what is it, their seventh anniversary right now yeah and one of the tributes was by bryce remsberg who's this referee and he said lucha libre and laughs had two things that i normally hate in an indie show which is the ring up on stage and live commentary but he goes but the commentary was actually funny and what's so funny to me is like i I go to that, and you and Lund are so good doing live calls of the action. And I, I say that as a wrestling fan who's, who's you know, watched this since I was probably five years old. You and Lund are probably my favorite part of the show. Oh, man, thank you. Uh, I really, really appreciate that because it's my favorite thing that I get to do. Is it really? Like, 
I love it, dude. It's the most fun. Because, I mean, we're improvising for three hours, you know? Like, we know the wrestlers' names. We we know the finish. I mean, I, I don't want to break kayfabe or whatever. Right. I'm about, I'm about, I'm about to smart <laughs> some people up right now. Uh, yeah. Sorry, yeah, Nick. We, you know, <laughs> all we know is pretty much the finishes. And uh, other than that, we have to fill in everything in between. And yeah. and I think I think what makes us good is is that, like, Lund, A, loves wrestling. You know what I mean? Yeah. He, I love Lund. He's my best friend. Uh, I love trying to make him laugh and vice versa. So he can call the action. You know, he can call Snapmare, uh, you know, into the corner, uh-oh, avalanche, one, two, kick out type shit. And then I just kind of snipe, you know, and, like, get to be funny while Lund's doing the majority of telling the story. But at the same time, like, I think why we work and why wrestlers like us and why wrestling fans like our shows because we're not doing anything to besmirch the business. Right. Like, we're not, you know, making fun of wrestling. We're not calling the guys, you know, we're not doing any kind of hacky stuff. Like, oh, it looks like they're having sex, like that kind of shit. Like, yeah. of course, some of those jokes sneak in when it's, like, egregious, you know. Yeah. But if we were if we were too tongue-in-cheek, like, winking, like, oh, this is silly, look how ironic. If we were, like, you know, Brooklyn hipsters about it, like, that yeah. would suck. But I, I love, I respect wrestling. I respect the wrestlers. Like, they're my friends now. Yeah, so, you're not putting yourself above the action. You're not putting yourself above the art form. No, and also we sell the fuck out of it, dude. When Lonnie jumps off the top rope to the floor yeah. and smashes Caleb Crush into the chairs, I'm holy shitting just like everyone else is, dude. Oh, totally. Yeah, because I pop. I pop. They pop me, brother. <laughs> <laughs> one of the one of the tributes was written by who's the uh, who's the guy who vapes. Um, Oh, uh, Corey, Cody Devine. Cody Devine. Yeah. Um, and so, like, he reminds me of Kyle O'Reilly in NXT in that I both want to just see their, their faces get caved in. And I mean that as a character, and I mean that as the highest compliment, right? Yeah. Like, Cody Devine comes out, I'm like, man, will someone just beat the shit out of this guy? And so he wrote his little tribute to Lucha Libre and Laughs on Facebook, and all I wrote in the comments was, man, fuck this guy. The highest compliment I can give a wrestler. Yeah. And <laughs> he actually went ahead and liked that comment. I go, that's awesome. Like, I, yeah. I what, like, what a, what a fabulous product. Have you been with it since the beginning? Yeah, since day one. We called, I've called every one of the shows except for when I'm out of town. Yeah. I, I would fly back when I lived in Vegas. I would fly back for it to like just do the show, you know? That's right. Yeah. You moved to Vegas for a while. How long was that? Two years, pretty much to the day. Okay, and how's the stand-up comedy scene out there? I mean, you know, like, you know, there's, like, Elaine Boozler still headlining and Rita Rudner and stuff, and, like, Bobby Slayton has his room at the Tropicana, but for, you know, someone who's not kind of, like, old comedy, how is it for, you know, someone like you, uh, you know, coming out of Denver and, you know, that that hasn't Uh, been on television to the extent that some of these other folks have? I don't know, man. I'll say, like... uh... The crowds there are pretty uncreative. I think that's the best way I can describe Vegas comedy. Like, there's good comics there, man. Like, don't get me wrong. There's some people who are doing really funny stuff. But for the most part, the shit there is, like, it's either pretty hacky, vulgar, blue comedy. Or it's, like, uh, the Doug Stanhope model, because he started there, where people are, like, trying to tell the truth, like Bill Hicks it. Oh, right. And... Which, you know, those fucking stand openers in there, they look like school shooters. It's a rough one. <laughs> um, so I don't know. The crowds just, like, don't give you a fertile soil to try and be interesting or unique or creative comedy-wise. 
Like you pretty much have to feed the pigs their slop and just do like missionary style stand up. So yeah, I don't know. I didn't enjoy my time there. And it wasn't because of the comics. The comics opened their arms to me and they were lovely. And But the best part of Vegas was people pass through there. So you could like, you know, see your friends when they're in town, like celebrating or whatever. But I did not enjoy my time in Las Vegas. Yeah, no, uh, I, I imagine that would be challenging. And it's so funny, dude. Like you, you say you don't, you can't write a joke like Adam Kate in Holland, but that that's so evocative the way you described Vegas comedy. You need to pe- feed the pigs their slop and do missionary style comedy. I know exactly what you meant by both of those things, and those both have an odd poetic quality to them. But I'm reminded of something that I read that you wrote, and I want to say this was a couple of years ago, and it was about life on the road. Do you know what I'm referring to? Yeah, it was that Vice article I wrote. Yeah, it was the Vice article. How did that come about? Did you pitch that to them, or were you approached to do that piece? Because I thought it was really good. So can you share a little bit for anyone who hasn't read it uh, what yeah. kind of the thrust of that piece was? Yeah, I mean, it's still online. Like, if you search Vice.com, Sam Talent, like, it's on there. And I'll, I'll link uh, to it in the in the show notes and the companion blog piece. Yeah, man. I mean, until I wrote my book, that was probably my thing I was most proud of that I've ever put out. I, I like, I write, you know, like I write a lot of like short fiction and stuff. I was, I wrote a bunch of short stories cause I love, I love novels. I love literature, you know, fiction. And I don't, I don't like, uh, like historical shit, but I love, I love reading and I've always written stuff. And, uh, so I wrote that thing. Uh, it was pretty much like, uh, a stylized first person account of like me on the road in different cities. Just read it. If you're listening to this, yeah. uh, and I was like, well, I wonder who could publish this. And I like, I, I submitted it to the Oxford American and they said it wasn't Southern enough. They liked it, but it wasn't Southern enough because they focus on like Southern stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I submitted it to the Atlantic and the Atlantic, uh, they read it. I mean, if they write you back a rejection, like that's good, you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, so they passed as well. So I, I know I've worked for Vice in the past and like was on Viceland. So I hit up uh, the editor of Vice and pitched it and they said uh yeah this is great we're gonna cut it from like five thousand words to twelve thousand or to five thousand to twelve hundred words so i was like oh fuck jesus so they edited it out pretty much anything that was like redemptive or there was anything positive like they made it this like bleak like sad kind of like they they made me sound like i was martyring myself which I didn't like because I didn't want. To, I love stand up, and like there was yeah. a lot of like positive stuff in there that was that was cut out. So they made it just this like bleak glimpse into like a truly broken man. Yeah, it was like Bukowski or something. Fine. Yeah, so that was on them. No, that's know? what like, I mean. Like, yeah, I would have been interested to see the real cut of that because I'm like, man, this is fucking dark. Yeah, I mean that's them though. You know, I think they named it like stand-up is like a horrible job or something i can't remember what they titled it but i was really grateful uh that they published it and that's the thing that people like talk about the most when i'm on the road they'll be like i read that vice thing man that was fucking great and like i know i'm good at stand-up i like stand-up i have like a proven track record as a comic but when people say that like they like my writing that means a lot more to me because it's such a solitary pursuit, you know, like you're just like in front of a keyboard and you don't know if it's good until people tell you it's good. So yeah, man, that's uh, I appreciate you bringing that up. I'm really proud of that. Thing. Yeah. I, I thought it was terrific. And I remember thinking, I'm like, that, that's why I find it so surprising that you say you don't write many jokes. I'm it, not a good joke writer though. Okay. Like I am like a good writer. Like I can like write prose and like, but that's the thing. Like I wrote my book, man, you know, and like, 
when I, when I was in Vegas, I didn't have any friends. Like I had friends, like comic friends, but I wasn't like busy in the daytime, you know? So like my wife was away at med school in Vegas and I was there. So I just like sat in front of a keyboard for eight hours a day and wrote. And, like everyone keeps asking, like after the book, they're like, Hey man, like, can you tell me how to like write? Like, what are your tips for writing? And it's like, I don't know, dude, I'm not, I don't write that fast. Like I wasn't, I did the work. I, I'm able to like work really hard and make up for any gaps I have in talent. Like I've always really respected like artists that don't do one thing. Yeah. Like no, Brian totally. Chippendale from lightning bolt or like Mick Foley, dude, like Mick Foley is so cool because he's one of the best. He's one of the greatest professional wrestlers ever. Like one of the best entertainers ever. And then and you read his books, which you like expect to be, you know, just like shitty memoirs and like they're insightful. Like his books are good. And I don't like, you know, autobiographies or anything like that. So I just really like people who can do more than one thing well, and they don't get like pigeonholed into just being a stand-up or just being a painter or whatever it may be. No, I, I agree with you 100%. And it's so funny that when you actually do something like, you know, you write a book and people go, hey, what tips do you have for writing a book? It's like, sit down and start fucking writing, number one. Yeah. Uh, like, don't don't ask me how to get started. You just do, Okay. And then you figure it out because I get that all the time with podcasts. People are like, you know, I've always thought about starting a podcast. I go, great, start it. And they go, well, and, and they start hemming and hawing. I'm like, you don't actually want to start this thing, do you? No, you just want to say it so you get that serotonin rush. Yeah. Like so many people will be like, oh, I'm writing a book. And it's like them saying that they're doing the thing prevents them from actually doing it. You know what I mean? Like I didn't tell anyone I was writing a book because I didn't, I didn't know it was going to be done. I was I was ashamed of it until it was finished, you know. <laughs> right. So, but so, yeah, people are like, "How do I get started in stand up?" It's like, go to a fucking open mic. Anyone can start in stand up. There's no tricks whatsoever. Go to a mic, eat shit ten times in a row, uh, and then either quit or don't quit. You know, <laughs> there's no tricks to it. Yeah, just look for opportunity. So with me, with people asking for podcasts, I put together like this two or three page document. I'm like, look, here's all the technical stuff that I use. Here's what you need. Like, here's how you get an RSS feed. Here's the equipment you need. Blah, blah, blah. Right. So now you have yeah. that. Everything else is up to you. And like some people to their credit have actually done it. The vast majority of people I've given this to have not. Yeah. People want any excuse not to do the thing. Yeah. It, either, either do it or don't, don't put it on anyone but yourself. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like with podcasts, like you need a microphone, you need to know how to record and shit. But as far as like writing or standups can, certain like there's very little barrier of entry into it you know so it just annoys me when people are like oh i i want to write or i want to try stand up it's like do it then just leave me alone <laughs> yeah i i'm not here to be your life coach um, yeah i'm not gonna hold your hand through this you know yeah you you just gotta make it happen you gotta make the fucking leap and and go for it and so many people don't do anything and like it's really like they don't want to fail like, that's why improv was so good for me, because you get on stage when you're doing improv, like long form, like half hour improv with zero plan. And it teaches you how to bomb in front of a group of people. Yeah. And, like it teaches and, you how to fail in front of a crowd. That's an invaluable skill. Oh, and deal with it. Like, so, I mean, where did you learn improv, by the way? I went to the Bovine Metropolis Theater in Denver. Oh, I went there, too. I um, I only made it through level two because uh, my schedule like ended up getting fucked up and I ended up not enjoying it as much as I thought I would. And so that was valuable to learn. I'm like, you know, I've always wanted to try improv. And so I was trying to use a New Year's resolution to, to do something there where I'm going to better myself, right? Like I'm going to acquire a new skill or I'm going to 
contribute to my better well-being. And I'm like, I've always wanted to try improv. Let's try it. And so, yeah. I get, so I get in there, and I'm like, okay, this is fun, but I'm not enjoying it the way I did. But you know what? God damn it! At least I tried, and I love sure. their I love their method there too. Yeah, I mean, I love the bovine. I'm incredibly I'm incredibly grateful for what I learned there. Uh, but I will say that level one and level two of the of their their system does suck because you're learning like very rudimentary skills that have yeah. very little to do with stage performance. It's like how to answer a telephone correctly, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but I went through like all five levels there and ended up being on their house team. Like when I was in level three, like I, I really owe Eric Farone and Sarah Kerwin and those people like a big top. I, I, I I'm, I'm just grateful, you know? Yeah, no, they're, uh, they're really good folks there. And I, the thing I like too is they they force you to work clean. I love that. Yeah. I, I think that's really important. Like learning how to be funny while being clean is like is really important because like you know, working like immediately going blue or immediately going dirty or shocking, like that's such a crutch if you don't know how to use it correctly. Hundred percent, dude. Couldn't agree with you more. And a lot of people who I've told to take classes at Bovine are like, Well they let you they, they won't let you be dirty and it's like good. Learn how to be funny. (laughs) Learn how to build a relationship on stage, you know? Learn how to find the game. Like, don't... Because, I mean, I've seen some of the places that teach improv around town, and holy shit, you can tell the difference between people who learned there as as opposed to people who learned at the bovine. Yeah. No, absolutely. And so it was really useful for me because the closest I have, and this is one reason I always love stand-ups, is... In my job, I'm leading a lot of corporate training, so I'm up in front of people a lot... And you like how to command their attention. And when the audience is giving you nothing, like how do you draw them out? So you're saying like, you're going to go down swinging and you're going to crash and burn. I do that every time. And to sort of tie all this together, I thought about something I read that Devon Dudley said, which is there could be 80,000 people in the audience at WrestleMania, or we could be in a high school gym with 40 people in front of it. There's going to be someone in that audience who's never seen the Dudley boys before. And I want them all to leave going, you know what? Those guys really gave me my money's worth. Oh, yeah. And so if I'm in front of an, an audience of indifferent, like, white-collar professionals, like, I don't care if they're not giving me anything, if they're all staring at their phones. I'm going to give them a show as much as I possibly can, which is why I've always, like, identified with wrestlers and stand-ups. Because in my own very small way, and I'm not, I'm not equating these, you know, in terms of value... But the rhythms feel very similar when I when I hear comics interviewed or wrestlers interviewed. You know, they all kind of describe that same thing. And when you get off stage, like there's always a come down. Like when I'm when I'm presenting, when I'm doing a training and I'm done, I'm like wrecked. I, I crash a little bit. So when you come off stage, like do you have that feeling still? Like do you is there like a, a steep come down for you? And if there is, how do you handle it? There used to be, man, but then, like, you, I've, I've been headlining for, like, seven years now, and now when I walk off stage, it's definitely, like, a, all right, good, I did my job, but I, I, def, I don't, I used to walk off and be, like, whoo, all right, you know, and, like, head yeah. to the bar and take shots. Now I walk off stage and check my phone and, like, respond to text messages from my wife, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like, I definitely don't go to bed until 3 a.m. after, after a show or whatever, and, I definitely drink beers after a show, but that could just be because of the chemical dependency issue. I'm not sure. But, I mean, I love that quote, like you said about Devon, because I always got that. Like, I came from, like, hardcore punk. Like, I, I was in bands before I was in improv or I was in stand-up. 
And there was a great quote, uh, Henry Rollins, when he joined Black Flag, they like practiced for like three months straight, like every day, like eight hours a day, because Black Flag was fucking militant about their practice schedule. And then they did their first tour and Rollins drove, like they drove all the way to Oklahoma City, I think, from uh, L.A., and they got there and Rollins was all jacked up and there was like eight people in the room. And he was like, fuck this, dude. Like, I didn't work my ass off to perform for eight people. And Chuck Dukowski, the bass player, was like, look, man, it doesn't matter. Like, there could be eight people here. There could be a hundred people here. You give them Black Flag. They came to see Black Flag. You give them Black Flag. All right. It's not their fault that no one else showed up. They came to see you. Give them the fucking show they drove here for. And that's always stuck with me. Like, yeah, because when I was on the road initially doing stand up, I'd be fucking doing shows for who fucking knows, dude, seven people closing an open mic for 12 people. And I always gave them the best version of myself. So that time, next time you come back, maybe those seven people bring someone. So you got 14 people. The next time you come, maybe you have 30 people. Like, that's how you build a fan base is you give the best show you can every fucking time, you know? 100%. I like, I, I couldn't possibly agree more. And I think about, so I, I also like, I grew up in punk rock too. Like I'd never played in bands, but I, I went to shows and I hosted my own radio show in college. Um, like punk show every Friday night. And I remember one time I went and saw yellow card because I saw them open for the mad caddies and mm-hmm. yellow card was playing a show at like one o'clock in the afternoon at the bluebird. And so it was, yeah, it was the daytime show, which was really strange. And they had this local band opening for them named Step Short. There's like 40 people there, maybe 25. And Step Short gets up there, and they just melted my face. And I go, holy shit, you guys are great. And so I went yeah. I went and saw them, and then I invited them on my show. They, they ended up coming up to Fort Collins. Every time I saw them, they were giving it. And that's why I always go and check out the opening bands, too. Like, no matter where yeah. I go... Go to the opening band because you never know who you're going to see and who's going to blow you away. Right. And, like, odds are if you like the headliner, like, they probably pick their openers. Yeah. Or, if you know, hopefully if they're lucky. Like, I always try and make the people open for me, people that make me laugh, you know, people I want to put on a little bit. But I totally agree. And, like, also when I was in bands, like, you had to watch the openers. If you were in a band that didn't watch the rest of the bands, you were fucking hated, you know? Oh, sure. So, I agree. That brings me to another thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is Big City Drugs. Man, you guys like so it's it's four comics in Denver who who I really like it. Uh, it's you, Kevin O'Brien, Corey Healy, and uh, Bobby. Bobby Bobby Crane. Crane. Yeah, yeah. Who quit stand up and now he's going to law school in Portland? Holy shit! Really? Shout out to Bobby. Yeah, he got into Lewis and Clark, dude. He got a scholarship. Wow. He's like one of my best friends. I'm so proud of him. Wow, that's funny. And like, it's hilarious too because one of his Facebook profile photos that I just I always remember this for some reason is him like in an orange jumpsuit. Yeah, like yeah. smoking a cigarette where they're like on the side of a highway, you know, where it says like, yeah. do not pick up hitchhikers. And now that, yep, that, that was his like comedy headshot. We made fun of him so bad for that. <laughs> <laughs> and that dude's going to law school. Yeah, dude. Uh, anyway, yeah, dude, big city drugs. That was all Kevin. Like I, I wanted to be in a band. I always want to be in a band, but I'm on the road too much. Yeah. So like, it's tough for me to actually be in a band, but Kevin organized everything and made sure we had practice and, that was all him. He wrote all those songs because I play drums, but yeah, I can't write a song. You know, I can do like the mouth guitar thing. Like, well, how about like a wow, 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 but like Kevin had to do everything. So I really wow. hats off to him for that because that was a good band. We put out some good shit. Yeah, you guys. Uh, yeah, you guys rocked quite a bit. Thanks, uh, man. I was proud of us. 
Yeah. And so, like, do you guys ever, are you all ever in the same town anymore? Like, do you ever play anymore? No, because, like, I lived in Vegas. Corey lived in, Corey moved back to Omaha. Kevin's in New York. Bobby was here. Yeah. So we would, like, come home and, like, practice and then do a show that night. Like, and they were, I think the shows suffered. Like, I'm a real perfectionist when it comes to music. And, like, every band that I was in before that, like, I was in a band called Rowdy Shadehouse Funk Band that, like, had all types of like we practiced for so long and that was brutal and then i was in a band called red versus black that toured a lot and we lived in the, we lived in a fucking commune and practiced all the time so i really do get embarrassed when a song doesn't go well that's like i don't know that's why i'm not very good at like co- collaboration yeah that's why i like stand up and that's why i like to wrestle when i was in high school and shit like that because if i'm gonna lose i want to lose all on my own i don't want to blame anyone else for it yeah i'm kind of the same way um that's why i've worked for myself for the last five years that's why i do this podcast just interviewing people like it's all on me like the show's called john of all trades but i have to do fucking everything for this show which which both destroys me it's a workload that is prohibitive considering like i have to run my own business too but like i can't really do it any other way otherwise i'm just existentially really unhappy well, yeah, but dude, you're doing a really good job. Like a lot of times you have people's podcasts and they suck, but you're asking some really good questions and like that. I love that fucking Devon quote. Like, yeah, you're doing a good job. This is, this is much better than most podcasts <laughs> I have to do. <laughs> well, yeah, I, most podcasts are ass. I mean, I agree with you. It's, I mean, okay. So I use this analogy quite a bit. You think about baseball, right? Are you a baseball fan at all? Not in the least. Okay, cool. So perfect. This will this will soar when I when I say it to you. But you'll get it. You'll get it in the abstract. There are thirty teams in in the major leagues. There are twenty five guys on each team, right? And so those are roughly the seven hundred and fifty best baseball players on the planet at any given time, right? More or less. Sure. You think about how many of those players fucking annoy the shit out of you, and you go, "Man, that guy sucks," right? <laughs> and. Like these, these are people at the top of their profession. Now you think about podcasting and just how many like Tom, Dick and Quasimodo fucking shit casts are out there. And you go, how many of those are just terrible? Oh yeah. And, but like, here's the beauty in it. The people who will stick with it. This show is more than six years old. I have more than 250 episodes. Figure out what you have. That's unique. Figure out what's different. And it's like, you will get better. And the beauty of podcasts is it's a fairly democratized medium. In that, like, the bad ones will go away and they'll never find an audience. The good ones will tend to stick around. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I love podcasts for sure, but there, I mean, there's a lot of bad ones. <laughs> and I, I've been on a lot of bad ones. Uh, okay, so here's a question Why have you never been on All Fantasy Everything? Because I know you're pals with David Borey. Oh, yeah. Uh, I've done two live ones. I'm on the. Oh, Minnesota live ones. One. Okay. Yeah, I'm on the Minneapolis one and then. Somewhere else, I can't remember. Okay. Uh, I mean, I have a standing offer. They're like, whenever if you're ever in LA, but I rarely go to LA because I don't enjoy it there. Okay, because I, I feel yeah. like you would fit in really well on that show. Like that's a show I vibe with. I I produce other podcasts professionally for organizations. Like this is nothing you would ever listen to, but people are always like, "What podcasts should I listen to?" And I go, "I have no fucking idea." Because like the last thing I want to do after I'm done spending time with big blocks of audio is spend more time with big blocks of audio. Yeah, like when people ask me what podcasts I like, I'm like, uh, well, I don't want to say Come Town or Matt and Shane's Secret Podcast, but <laughs> those are the ones. I like Tim Dillon a lot, too. Yeah, uh, I like the All Fantasy Everything, guys. I mean, me and Bory have been best friends since 
ninth grade. Like, he was the best man at my wedding. Wow. He's like my brother. Yeah, and then you... I've known Ian and Sean, you know, Sean's the luckiest man in showbiz. He fucking fell ass backward into that gig. So <laughs> good for him. But yeah, dude, I don't know. They're, they're, they've offered me to come on whenever and I just haven't been out there. Yeah. Well, I'll look forward to that one because, uh, I love the vibe. I know, uh, I think, uh, Sharpie's been on your, one of your fellow fine gents. Do you guys ever have designs on getting the fine gents back together or is that something that exists in the past for you? No, man. I mean, we did, uh, we did January 1st this year. We did the first Wednesday of the year. No, I, rem- uh, I remember that, but like, yeah, like I, I, and I know you do sort of one off reunions, but is there ever any desire to like go back to that? Or is that just something you prefer to keep in your past and look ahead to other different projects? I don't know, man. I don't think we could go back. Like that was such a magical time. Those fucking six or seven years, like, you know, we had the best show on a Wednesday, best weekly show in the country. As far as I'm concerned, like, I don't know if we were trying to chase those those fumes, man. We would we would be embarrassed because like I was also shit. I was what twenty three when that all started, twenty two. So we were younger and we were more full of life and we were single and we were drinking a lot more. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I don't know, dude. I I look back on the. I didn't know how good we had it either because every Wednesday I'd be like, "Fuck, we got to do the show. Is anyone going to come?" We yeah. haven't done a lineup. We haven't figured out the opening of the show yet. Like, it was so stressful. And now, I, after we quit, like, I had withdrawals every Wednesday, man. My hands were shaking. It, it reminds me of this quote from the movie Pirate Radio. Um, it's probably best that you didn't know, like, how good you had it. Because oh, yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman says at one point in that movie, he's like, I had a thought the other day, and I should have crushed it out as soon as it entered my head. But I go, these are the best days of our lives. And as soon as you know that, it's over. Dude, you're completely right. I mean, I courted my wife at that show. I fell deeply in love with so many women and had my heart broken by so many women during that show. Like, yeah, dude, we didn't know how good we had it. And thank God we didn't because we probably would have OD'd. <laughs> yeah. Or uh, it, it's funny, too. It's People will ask me, like, so what kind of listenership do you have for your show? And I'm like... I don't fucking know. Like, I know, like, I, I have to check in from time to time, but I don't chase numbers because I find when I do, I'm always surprised and disappointed by which shows do well versus which shows do poorly because they never align with the ones that I love most. Like, oh, yeah. Like, almost never. And it's almost like you need to be a little bit oblivious to yourself to be the best version of yourself. You know, like, there's... There's something to be said for not being super self-aware about like how the levers work behind the scenes. Yeah, dude. I mean, comparison, comparing yourself to other people just leads to jealousy or hubris. Like you think you're hot shit or your feelings are hurt. So I'm with you on that a lot. I'm proud of the little bit of that I've been able to carve out. You know what I mean? Like my niche in showbiz, people are like, well, what do you want from like your career? And it's like, I don't know. Like I can go to a fucking louisville kentucky and draw 70 people like i'm happy about that you know what i mean whenever i meet with like agents or managers they're like so what do you want to do do you want to do like theaters you and it's like no i wouldn't be good in a theater you know like i'll just i'm happy where i am i i don't want to i'm not trying to stagnate or like you know slow down but if i only did what i'm doing right now for the rest of my life like i'd still feel incredibly grateful yeah, it's funny. People will ask me, like, what designs do you have for your company? Asking me about my company. And I go, I just want to do well enough to where I don't have to go work for anyone else ever again. For sure. 100%. Like, 
that that's it for me. And I, I don't know if that makes me less ambitious, but I had this epiphany the other day. People are like, you know, what's your dream? What do you, what are you chasing? What, like, what's your ultimate sort of goal? And I go, you know what? I'm kind of living it like, and there's fucking beauty in that. So I, I think there's danger in always trying to climb the next mountain entirely. That, that's not to say I'm not ambitious. I am. But I, to echo what you were saying, <clears throat> like ambition is one thing, but there, there's another thing to be said about enjoying what you have and being appreciative of how far you've come so far. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just uh, taking stock. And like, if you would have asked me when I started doing stand up, like if you would have told me what I'm up to now, I would have been like, no shit, that fucking rules. Totally. So I just try and remember that, you know, I got a wife I love, you know, I got a bunch of great friends. I've got friends across the country. I get to hang out with the funniest people in the world, literally like the top 0.01% of funniest people in the world. Are American stand-up comedians, so right, totally. I'm just, I'm just grateful, man. Everything rips. I'm cool, and I'm like you said, like I don't want to quit being ambitious, but I also stand-up has defined my entire adult life. So, like, I want to be ambitious about other stuff as well, you know. And yeah. like, people are like, "Oh, Sam, you must be really hurting because you can't do stand-up during quarantine." And it's like, I've never not done stand-up. Like, this is kind of cool to be forced to stop because. I'm always afraid to say no to any gig because I was always wanted gigs so bad for so long. And now it's like, yeah, I'll fucking, you know, go to South Dakota and do three shows for 1200 bucks. Like that'll be one weekend of my life. All right, cool. Yeah. But to just like not be at an airport twice a week and to like be sleeping in the same bed with my wife all the time and like chilling with my dog and seeing more of my family. Like it's cool. It's a, you know, you just got to take it as it comes. I think that's kind of beautiful the way you describe it because, you know, this this pandemic, while it sucks in so many different ways, it allows you to really take stock. And I, I think there's certainly value in that. And it's funny, too, because it's like you've written this book. And so that's kind of like my last question to you is, can you describe the book to me? Because it's like you're not doing stand up right now. We've written this book, and it seems like a good time to kind of get it out there because a lot of people are at home. We can't go to shows. We can't go see stand-up. We can't really get out of our house that much. What's the book about, and uh, where can we find it once it's released? I don't know, dude. It was, it was, I w- I've been shopping this book. Like I had like a, I, you know, I've got a literary agent who's like fucking really good at his job, but the book is not – there's not a big readership for a book like this. So I was getting offers for like five grand, like 10 grand. And then you don't make any money after that until you make that money back on sales. Right. That's making it back like a dollar 30 per book. Like when they say you have to make the money back before you make more money, like they're not giving it to you. It's not like you sell a book for 20 bucks and that 20 bucks goes towards you making your money back. Like the literary fucking publishing market is insane and it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So I was like, fuck it. I'm going to put out like, you know, I ended up selling like right around a thousand copies and that was cool because, you know, I don't have an income right now. So it was cool to like make that money. But now I can go back to like a publishing company and be like, look, I sold this many copies in fucking nine days. Like here, give me seven grand. And now you put it out underneath like your crime imprint or whatever the fuck you want. Just get it in Barnes and Noble. That's all I care about. I want it to be in bookstores. Yeah. So the book's about, sorry, I've, I'm just worked out. I'm fucking fired up, brother. I cut a promo if you need to. It's okay. 
<laughs> Cincinnati, Ohio. So here, uh, Barnes and Noble. <laughs> I the book's about a guy named Billy Ray Schaefer, who is an old broken down truck of a man. He's a stand up who's done stand up his entire life. He went to prison. He got out. He uh, has had a huge fall from grace. He was a very in the 80s comedy boom, he had a nice career. He was uh, becoming a household name, blah, blah, blah. He has a fall from grace due to his own degeneracy and deviance. And uh, the book is about seven days in his life throughout the American Southwest uh, doing terrible one-nighters and shit gigs to make his $300 a night to live. And, you know, he's a cokehead. He's, uh, he's a violent person. He makes a lot of bad decisions. And, you know, he ends up uh, trying to reconnect with some family when he gets back into Colorado. And, you know, there's Norm MacDonald uh, plays the uh, the moral compass of the novel. Uh, I'm very proud of it, man. It's pretty much about all these comics I see. It's about comic. It's about the guy I don't want to turn into. Wow. The guy who's just the fucking shell of a husk of a man who knows nothing else. And he's just like a punch drunk boxer, just kind of, you know, bouncing from premise the punchline of jokes he's done for 20 years he's just uninspired and uh just a sad you know man in shambles and it's very bleak and it's not uplifting and uh, uh it, 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 there's not a big market for books like this is what i was told by my agent and literally every other publishing house we talked to besides two so I'm proud of it. It's for sure the best thing I've ever done. It's uh, it's a literary novel. The prose is excellent and sparkling. And uh, yeah, man, a lot of people say this is the best thing I've ever done. This is probably going to be the peak of my creative output for the rest of my life. We'll see. I got the second book almost done, and I'm also proud of that. But this book is about my one and only love, stand-up comedy. So I think it's going to be hard to uh, to be closer to anything I'm ever going to create after this. That sounds awesome. I mean, that that sounds. It's that's certainly not going to be for everyone. No, uh, it's fucked up. <laughs> Good. Yeah, uh, like my mother-in-law read it and she was like, "Is this what it's like?" And I'm like, "Well, not for me, but like <laughs> for a certain population of comedians, this is this is who they are." You're like, I've seen this guy uh, more times than I can count. And I think every comic like knows this guy, you know? Yeah. So. Uh, there's a lot of pieces of comics that I love and respect in the book. It's, uh, it, it's good. Please buy it. Awesome. All right. Well, where can we find it? This is the time on the show when we do plugs. Uh, plug anything you want, Sam. Uh, yeah, man. So just at Sam Talent on Instagram, S-A-M-T-A-L-L-E-N-T. If you'd like a copy of the book, you can Venmo at Sam Talent 25 bucks, and I'll send you a signed copy. Or PayPal, sam.talent at gmail.com a signed copy or just email me sam.talent at gmail.com if you want to know more nice All i right. don't have i'm not i don't have an agent or a manager so i run everything myself and my literary agent for sure isn't going to answer your emails about it so <laughs> just hit me up okay well you and i are the same in that way i run everything myself and i will have links to everything you just said in the companion blog piece that's john of or in the show notes if you're listening on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or any of a billion other podcatchers. I don't know where you get your pods. Wherever it is, it'll be in the show notes. Sam, dude, this was uh, a real pleasure. You were always super nice to me. We did that one open screen night together. Um, you guys were the hosts. I was one of the judges with Meryl Wiles and Heather Snow. Oh, yeah, RIP. <laughs> yeah, RIP, Heather Snow. 
Um, and I felt like such a fraud there too, because I was the only one who wasn't like a professional comic. I'm like, what the fuck am I doing here? Um, oh man, who fucking cares? You seem like a good guy. Well, uh, I- good work on the show, by the way, this was so much better than I assumed it would be. Not because it's you, but because mostly podcasts are not good. So fair enough. Well, I appreciate that- the kind words, man. And, uh, can't wait till we cross paths again. And I wish you continued success. Thanks, man. Sorry I was so sincere on here. I'm a very sincere, earnest guy, so I know it wasn't the funniest thing. But uh, sincerity. What are you going to do? I'm a human being, you pigs. This is who I am. I bleed. And that'll do it for episode 252 of the John of All Trades podcast with Sam Talent. What a funny guy. What a great guy. And I love this chat. Be sure to check out the companion blog piece in the show notes for all the links that he just mentioned. I'll have them there. Apparently, don't go to a Zoom stand-up comedy show, even though Sam does a bunch of them. Let's check him out when we're all out in public again. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M.us. Training, content, engagement, podcasting. If you're trying to reach new people, I can help you do it. I will help you tell your story and then get it in front of the people who need to see it most. Whether you're talking internally or externally, hit up Deft on the web, D-E-F-T. C-O-M.us. Our sponsor is Four Degrees, number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Anything you're doing online, whether you're building a website, doing an online campaign, social media marketing, online advertising, they've got you covered. They're an amazing firm. They're winning awards. They work with all types of clients. And you know what? Tell them John sent you. The number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Hit me up on social. I'm at Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram, all under the same handle, J-O-A-T-Pod. Episode previews go up on Mondays. New episodes drop on Wednesdays. I've got one coming up next week. I'm talking to someone else whose work I adore. What a fun time on this podcast. It's really keeping me going, and I hope it's contributing positively to your life. Stay healthy, stay safe, stay sane. Can't wait to hear you again. And until I do, say goodnight, Tracy. That's good, Johnny.